Welcome to Unlocked with Jordi Karlinski. My name is Jordi Karlinski, and I'm a former professional athlete turned real estate agent based out of Aspen, Colorado. In this podcast, I interview business and real estate professionals, coaches across many industries, and other athletes to deliver educational and life-changing content. If you are someone who has a thirst for personal and business development, who seeks growth in all aspects of your life, and who wants to dive deeper into real-life current events as they relate to business and real estate, then this is the podcast for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Unlocked with Jordi Karlinski. I am your host, Jordi, and in this episode, we are unlocking the need-to-knows and secrets of first-time home buying and so much more as you will soon discover. I'm very excited about this episode for a couple of reasons. Home buying is such a monumental part of many people's lives, and Katie Erickson of Bay Equity Loans, my guest on this episode, gives some great advice to first-time homebuyers. And we also discuss the historic lows that the mortgage rates are at currently and what mortgage rates are exactly and where they come from. So there's a lot of educational information in this episode. And if you're a first-time homebuyer or have ever wondered what it takes to buy a home, then this is the episode for you. Besides discussing the do's and don'ts of home buying, we also dive into the, what the mortgage industry was like pre-pandemic what happened in March 2020 when the pandemic hit our shores, and what it is currently like today. Please note that this episode was recorded in the fall of 2020, so things may look a little bit different than when this episode goes live. If you would have asked anyone in the real estate or mortgage industries back in March 2020 what they thought would happen over the coming months, I don't think anyone would have expected what we are seeing today. You may be pleasantly surprised. To introduce my guest, Katie Erickson of Bay Equity Loans out of Basalt, Colorado, she was born and raised in Minnesota, attended the University of Minnesota in Duluth. Katie has been lending since 2002 and moved to Colorado in 2003. Katie has experience in consumer, commercial, and mortgage lending and has been doing mortgages for five years. Katie is involved in the local Roaring Fork Valley community and serves on various boards over the years that focus on education and affordable housing. Katie's business partner at Bay Equity Loans is Jeremy Jocelyn. And without further ado, I'm very excited to bring on Katie Erickson to my podcast. Welcome, Katie. I'm really excited to have you on today. Thank you, Jordi, for having me. Happy to be here. So let's get into it. So let's talk about the home buying process and mortgages and what you do in your world. The home buying process can be quite overwhelming, especially when it comes to getting a loan. So let's just kick it off with what exactly are mortgages um, and are there different types of mortgages? There are. There's lots of different types of loans and depending on the person will depend on what the best fit for them is. And so whether it's a loan that I can do 
uh, or not. Um, I like to serve as a reference for my clients to get them into the right place. But in general, mortgages are a loan secured by a residential piece of real estate. That doesn't mean that that's how when all loans are that way because there's bank loans, commercial loans, different things. But generally speaking, when you think of a mortgage, think of a your primary home loan, which would be like a 30-year fixed rate loan or a 15-year loan. You also have an investment property with a mortgage or a second home. Mortgages versus bank loans as well as mortgages tend to have fixed rates, which means it's a safe option for you because you know what your housing expense is going to be and it's not going to change. And so that's one of the, the big pluses to having a conventional mortgage. But sometimes that loan isn't the best fit right away or ever. Um, but we always start to go there first. So you start out with conventional loans. Is that what I'm understanding? And then. Yeah. And um, so mortgages have guidelines and each program has different guidelines. Conventional loans are the most basic. We also have FHA loans, which are great for first time home buyers, has some more flexibility. We also have USDA loans, which have 0% down but they can be tough to qualify for because they have income caps. But for those that fit within that, that what I call the sweet spot, that's a great loan, VA loans for the veterans. And there's you know, a variety of local loan programs you know, among different states, counties, all of those things. And as loan mortgage professionals, it's our job to find out what meets our clients' needs and goals the best. So we never expect people to come in knowing what they're looking for. And sometimes people do their research and they say, I think this is the loan I need, but it's their first time going through it. So they really should lean on their loan officer to help get them into the right place. But everyone's financial position is different. And we just make sure to fit them with the right loan to get them the best rates and terms that they can. And if, because we have more rules, um, more kind of black and white rules in mortgage, Sometimes for a specific reason, it might not be a good fit for someone. Then we like to line them up with someone in an in-house portfolio bank loan that has more flexibility because they can more customize the needs to that person, but they will not generally have a fixed rate loan. It might be fixed for five years or seven years, okay. but it could be a short-term solution. And is that an ARM loan when it's fixed for five or seven years? Yeah. Yeah, usually they are. The ones that we see here in the Roaring Fork Valley, usually for five or seven years, the the rate is fixed on a 5-1 arm or a 7-1 arm, but the payment term would be over, um, you know, 15, 20 or 30 years, just depending on the loan, but but it can be a great fit for some people. So with with Bay Equity, you're you're not at a bank, and so can you just go into a little more detail on what the difference is between you providing loans at Bay Equity versus a larger bank institution providing loans? Yeah, so all day long, what we do is mortgages, only mortgages. And so we really have a, a specialty in that. And we have the ability to you know, navigate people through the guidelines to help meet their needs, maybe more so than someone that's doing lots of different types of loans at a bank, because that's our specialty. And when we do it, it's always mortgages. And it's all almost always in up with, with us, especially right now with the low interest rates, we're experiencing a fixed rate. We have the ability to do the arms, but usually we only go to that um, route when rates are higher. Right now we are at all-time lows, so let's lock them in. Um, when someone goes to a bank, 
they're going to end up with, their rates are probably likely a little bit higher than what, what ours are right now, even when they're doing an arm versus us doing a fixed. But um, an example would be why someone would go to a bank versus us could be maybe their income, the way we have to look at their income is lower than what they're actually receiving based on the documentation rules that we have. So we have guidelines on how we have to look at the income. Whereas a bank could, since they have deposits, they know the family, all those things, they can make ex more exceptions than we can. Okay. So they have more flexibility to maybe get somebody approved that we might not be able to if you know they have the relationship with, with the local bank. If you're going to a big bank, they don't generally make um, exceptions like that, but that would be where we would lean on more of the, the local banks. Um, the big banks, even with their car loans, home equities, you know, in-house mortgages, they still have a lot of criteria like we do. So when I look to send someone to a bank to get a loan approved, if they don't quite fit into the mortgage box, it's one of the local banks with flexibility that values relationships as well. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. For the clarification on all that. So when it comes to home buying and starting the process, what do you, what are, what's the first thing you recommend to first time home buyers? Yeah. So we've been working with a lot of first time home buyers right now. And um, with, with our process, we do a very online automated process. We also like to meet with our customers and sit down, but in our current environment, it's kind of handy to be able to um, kind of lean on the automation that we have and the online resources. So we email out a link to the application for them to fill it out. So we have kind of their baseline information. Sometimes people are sensitive and not wanting their credit pull as part of that process because they think it's going to ding their score. And sometimes it can a few points, but not really in the long term, just for a you know short period of time. I think it's important because some of these programs that you're looking at for your credit online or Credit Karma or some of those or your credit card score, it's using the most um, current versions of the credit reports and banks and mortgage companies all use the same versions. They have a more conservative calculation. So people can be kind of skewed on what they think their credit score is. So I really think that's important. And also there can be surprises on the credit score. They didn't know they missed a payment or they had identity theft or all that. So it gives us time if we can do all of these things up front to be able to get anything that needs to be cleaned up, cleaned up, or maybe they need to save more for a down payment. But doing that application, pulling the credit and, you know, doing all that information kind of right when you're starting to think about the process is really helpful because we can really position people nicely to either to qualify or to qualify better to get the better interest rates, lower mortgage and insurance premiums if necessary, and all of that. So, and it's a very fluid process. I mean, sometimes people will say, well, I want to wait until I've got my credit cleaned up. I want to do these things. But I always tell them it doesn't matter. I mean, because it's fluid, we can adjust things, we change things. And we're just trying to be on their team to get them positioned to be um, as good as they can when they're ready to purchase. So going to credit score, because um, I think that's a really important piece of the the mortgage world and qualifying, How? what are some of the do's and don'ts when you're trying to buy a home to keep your credit score up or how might someone repair their credit score as well if it does have dings in it? Yeah, everyone's, I mean, credit score is it's a different equation for everybody, but in general, what I would say is always pay your, all your credit cards, loans, everything on time. That's number one. If you have credit card balances, 
I would try and keep your balance to 30% of your high limit. When you go above that, that's when it starts dinging your, or kind of lowering your score. And if you have them, you know, above 50%, it, it'll be a real um, hard hit on your credit. But as soon as those come down, the next time they report, your credit will instantly react to that. There are services out there to help repair credit if you have a lot of collections, medical collections, sure. different things like that, that they can call or write letters on your behalf to have some collections removed or late payments because they essentially hold the creditors to the law. If they can't prove up why that was reported, they can remove it. So there's some tools out there and that's one of the first things I look at to see, okay, what do we need to do to, to boost the score if needed? But yeah, the biggest one is the credit cards that's really in your control and just minimizing debt. Before you do that, talk to your don't wake the sleeping giant because if you pay off a credit or a collection, excuse me, um, there's software out there that notices this and it could make other collections come to the surface or they could update the last time your collection was reported, which gives it a different weight in the equation. So sometimes common sense doesn't serve as well in repairing credit. Sure. So what do you recommend if someone, say, had the goal to buy a home in four years from now? Are there certain things that people can do today to help boost their credit score? Is it opening up credit cards and making sure they're paid on time? What would you say to someone who has more of a longer term goal to buy a home and what yeah. can they do today? Yeah, and I don't necessarily like to encourage you know having more debt, but you do have to have a mm -hmm. credit score. So I would always say have at least two credit lines and like car loans are good, credit cards are good, but if you're using the credit card and if you're one of those that just doesn't want to use them, it's okay to have one, but just think about it as for like a tank of gas and pay it off or groceries, pay it off. Mm -hmm. But be mindful of what your high limit is and don't go above 30%. because You don't necessarily know when they're going to report to the agencies unless you call them and find out and you're a little bit more strategic about it. But I would definitely say to keep two credit lines and keep them open. If you have a long-standing, you know, credit line, don't or loan, don't close it. Leave it open. Trick, actually, now that I'm thinking of it, is too, is if you have, depending on the age of the people and what their, you know, family looks like, you could also, if you have no credit, you could hop on, be an authorized user on one of like your parents or your spouse's cards, and you get automatic credit for the history that they have the card. Hmm. You want to make sure it's a good card that they've been paying right. on and all those things. But that's a little secret trick. Hmm, that's interesting. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. I have to look into it maybe. <laughs> a little shortcut. Uh, well, that's great. That's really helpful information. And so let's say we're, we're now, you're working with a first-time homebuyer. They're now under contract. They've been pre-approved. They're under contract to buy a home. What are some of the major do nots when you're under contract? A big thing, do not change your job. Do not take out new credit. Do not spend all of your money because you're going to need more than you think and make all your payments on time. And that's a big one. And the other thing, like in going back to your person that had like the four-year plan, changing to from W-2 income to self-employed is a big deal. And we need to see the history of being self-employed to give you credit for the income. There are some, you know, minor deviations within there, but by and large, self-employed two years. So that can be a big deal. 
Um, W-2 jobs you can change, but don't do it when you're in the process or nearing the process. If you're thinking about buying a home, the more stable you can be in all aspects of your life, income, credit, um, savings, all of those things, that's the best because we love stability. Got it. Yeah, that that all makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's talk a little bit about why why being pre-approved is so important. I mean, as a real estate agent, if when I'm working with buyers, it's really important, especially in today's market, which we can dive into a little bit later um, with how fast paced and hot it is in the Roaring Fork Valley. Being pre-approved is key. And in your eyes, what are some of the benefits to being pre-approved? Well, there, there's a lot of benefits. There's benefits for the buyer. There's benefits for the seller and, and for the realtor for doing it. And right now, I don't, I'm hearing from a lot of realtors that if you're not pre-approved and you need a loan, they're not going to consider your offer because they get to pick who they want to sell their house to because there's multiple offers on most listings. The other thing is, is they like to see that you're working with somebody that's reputable and in generally in that local market because mm-hmm. they have more of an expertise. So that can make a difference too. Not always, but it can. From the buyer's perspective, why they would want to be pre-approved is because then they really know what they can afford. I mean, you yeah. may, there, and there's two different types of what you can afford. There's what you can, what works within your personal budget. And there's also what I can approve you for, or a lender can approve you for based on how you look on paper. The more you can do upfront before you submit an offer, the less stressful the whole process is going to be. It's a lot of, um, I, I call it a roller coaster because you have the highs and the lows. You're excited. You're under contract and you, you know, are working through some of your, um, contingencies and conditions or, you know, getting your inspection, doing all those things. It's just a very emotional and busy process that you're doing in a short time frame. So the more heavy lifting you can do up front, the smoother it's going to go. And also from a realtor's perspective is realtors are busy. They spend a lot of time finding the right homes for people. And we all have to value and respect each other's time. So mm-hmm. to know that your buyers are pre-approved is really, really helpful and respectful to you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to piggyback on that with just our current situation in the Roaring Fork Valley, which you know basically encompasses Aspen, Snowmass, Basalt, Carbondale, and Glenwood Springs, with such low inventory and such high buyer demand, I mean, to your point that sellers can now choose the terms ultimately. It, you know, the ball's in the seller's court right now. And so anything that can make you as a buyer more credible, look more attractive to sellers, um, the better you're off. And that is by far with having a pre-approval and why that's so important. Are, you know, if there are some buyers that, and maybe first time home buyers that only want to put 5% down or 10% down, is that okay? What, you know, what are you seeing with that? What does that mean? Are they going to have to pay more with private mortgage, mortgage insurance if they're not quite putting 20% down? Yeah. And there's, so there's all different types of structures and just depending on, I mean, it's all the factors combined though. So if we have someone with an 800 credit score that's putting 5% down, their mortgage insurance premium is going to be less than that person that has a 640 credit score and putting 5% down. It also um, just depends on loan size and all those things too. But, but we, we do it all the time. First time home buyers can do 3% down on a conventional loan. Um, they can do, you know, five gives them lower mortgage insurance than 10 and 20%. You don't need it. But 
Yeah, you don't have to be. Some people think they need to wait until they're just the savings account is full, credit is 740, and you know the job is ideal. And it's not the case. Is do I like that? Yes. Um, but we have people all over the spectrum that we help to get into loans every day and into homes. And, and every lender has a little bit different programs, but by and large, a lot of us use the same ones. And we kind of can take a slightly different path through each individual loan program. And some lenders have different criteria on top of the basic criteria. So not all lenders are equal. Sure. Or the same. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, it's just like you are shopping around for homes, like it's okay to shop around for different lenders as well, mortgage lenders, and see who you connect with and what other programs and offerings that a certain lender might offer to you. Yeah. Does do you do any um are there any benefits to being a first time home buyer? Well, there's like for a conventional loan, and, and first-time homebuyer is actually defined as someone that hasn't owned real estate in the last three years. So okay, they can do the 3% down. If that's not the case, if they're not a first-time homebuyer, we require 5%. That's the biggest difference. Um, if you're looking at some other like jumbo loans and things, being a first-time homebuyer can change the criteria that we look at. So it, it can come into play, but it's not a huge deal. Um there's programs like FHA and home conventional loan as home ready. And those are geared towards first time home buyers, but you don't have to be, but they have, um, they're more forgiving on lower credit scores. They have lower down payment requirements, like the three and three and a half percent down. The mortgage insurance premiums can be lower, but they're not always. So there's just different programs out there that we tend to put people into, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a first time home buyer. Got it. So when it comes to interest rates, what are interest rates exactly and how are they determined? Um, so interest rates are um, a security, essentially mortgage-backed security. So they fluctuate like the stock market does, but not nearly as hard swings and volatile as that. I mean, we can be volatile, but a big swing for us would maybe be going from 3% to three and a quarter for the same criteria. Mm-hmm. Something like that, like that versus, you know, where the stock market is really big swings. Um, we have like the coronavirus, though, we saw swings of about 2%. Um, but that only was over, you know, the course of about a week. And then there was the government, you know, helped to stabilize things with the, I'll kind of spare you all the details on that. But yes, they helped to stabilize things. And so, but the things that go into it really and the factors that determine where the mortgage, the demand for the mortgage-backed securities are would be what's happening in the stock market, what's happening in the bond market, domestic activity, international affairs, a pandemic, war, any of those events, um, oil prices, and how they impact each other. And so right now, the it's not easy to determine or predict, forecast what is going to happen because there's so many factors and plus an election. So Basically, we started seeing rates really tick down last year. We had a busy refi year last year, what we thought was a busy refi year. Um, then as the coronavirus started to pick up speed, January, February, we're like, whoa, this is getting closer. We were seeing rates come way down. Then they hit our shores early March, and it really shocked the system. And then um, kind of 
from April through now, they've been pretty stably low. I mean, there's deviations within there because still some of these other things impact it, not just the coronavirus, what's happening in the market, is the vaccine coming, is it not coming? You know, all these different things impact it. But, um, you know, another thing too that people are hearing is like, oh, the Fed said rates are going to be low for two years. They're not talking about mortgage rates. And that is the common misconception. Anytime the Fed makes a big statement, people think that, okay, well, no rush. Mortgage rates are just going to hang out, but they're not because they're at the whim of what's happening in the market. Right now, we have the Fed buying mortgage-backed securities at a low interest rate, so the demand is there to hold them low. They're, they're, they're kind of, hold, not kind of, they are holding them low by having buying those mortgage-backed securities. When they quit buying the mortgage-backed securities, once things seem like they've stabilized a little bit, we're going to have more swings. Um, so I would say post-election, we'll probably see rates tick up a little bit, which will happen regardless. And I think regardless of who who is elected, because people sit on the sidelines and don't do a lot of financial decisions that it's post-election. And then once they know who it's going to be, they make their decisions accordingly. Right. And we'll see, I think, a rise in interest rates regardless of the candidate that's selected. And um, next year, I would say, though, we're going to be in a low interest rate environment next year. But I don't think it's going to be as low as it is right now, but I do not have a crystal ball. Sure. I know if we all had a crystal ball during these times, we'd probably be, be doing pretty well. <laughs> It'd be very helpful. Um, well, well, that's that's all really fascinating about interest rates. Um, I mean, we see them in terms of buyer incentives right now in real estate. I mean, it's a major factor in, in the home buying process right now. And I think that's part of the reason why we're seeing so much de demand in the Roaring Fork Valley and also, you know, across the nation as well. So you, you, you talked a bit about refinancing in 2019. What about refinancing with these low interest rates? Has it been a crazy summer and spring for that? It's been crazy all year, and we never forecasted that we would be in this position all year, but it's record amounts and volumes of mortgages that are happening. Um, the purchases, of course, are happening, but the huge um, influx is all the refis because basically it makes sense for everybody to refinance because rates are just that low and they've never been this low. Yeah. And so we are just full tilt. And so that's why I'm telling the people too, the more prepared you can be and organized, the quicker we can get you through what is a fully stressed, maxed out system, no matter which lender you go with. We are as busy as we've ever been and times three. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, it's, it's crazy. And people should be refinancing because the yeah. rates are so great, but it's, um, it's wild. So in, in more of a specific, in the Roaring Fork Valley, are you seeing a, a mix of half home buyers, half refinancing, or how are the scales tipped? I mean, it depends on the person. Like for my current pipeline that I'm seeing right now, we definitely have way more refis. We have the purchases. Um, but I think also the purchases are, I mean, the refis we're going to have no, more no matter what, just because um, there's just so many people that are in need to refinance at these low rates. Right. But the other thing is our inventory problem. I mean, so much of it has been purchased already. You know, I'm sure there's more coming on as people think, well, now would be a great time to sell. There's a lot of buyers. Um, but we, we definitely are seeing more refis and purchases, but there is plenty of purchase activity happening. And I think if the inventory doubled, the amount of purchasers would double. Yeah. 
I, I agree with that. I think the the shortage of inventory in our valley is, um, and also across the nation. I mean, I've read stats and numbers. It's staggering how how um, much of a difference it is with such a high buyer demand and so such low inventory. And you know, I'm sure that does slow down the home buying um, process. Or I have seen it slow it down a little bit just in the most recent weeks. The summer was crazy. And I think right. now because there is such low inventory, things have slowed just slightly. Um, yeah. But, you know, our market is still very active, even it's, you know, considered off season. I know that there was when when you were saying in early March when, you know, coronavirus really came into the nation and also the Roaring Fork Valley. What was going on with jumbo loans? Why were those just, I guess, done? And um, a lot of mortgage lenders weren't lending on them. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, So there's the different, um, like if you look at like a conventional loan, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they back those loans. And so it's a safer investment for investors. And then there's government-backed programs, the VA, USDA, FHA. And so they're safer investments. So if something goes awry with them, they have the backing of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or the government. So those loans all stayed in place. Jumbos don't have that. And so there, there was no desire or demand, I should say, to invest in jumbo mortgage-backed security. And so the, it basically just all went away because there wasn't, there was no appetite. And now they're, they're coming back. We have jumbos. They just closed on them this morning. Okay. Um, Congratulations. (laughs) (laughs) But they're like jumbos and even the, any of the other loans, there's additional scrutiny because the investors have the, the fear of like, okay, well, is this person still employed? Has their business shut its doors? And so, that's a big change across the board. And there's always more scrutiny on a jumbo just because you're extending more money. It's a larger loan um, to one person. And so we've always dug in deeper into all of their financial criteria, but even more so now. And so, and, and income has to, and um, bank statements, everything has to be fresher. So before we could have, you know, four months, it could be four months old, and now it has to be inside of two months and we have to get business bank statements to say, is that a real PL? Are you profit and loss meaning? Are you really depositing um, funds into your business? Is it open? And so just kind of going a couple levels deep to say, to really prove that they are in business. And so that's, an, that's what you're going to see that in all programs, but not just not to the, the degree that you will in jumbos. But I think to finish answering your question, I think jumbos will continue to, you know, have more options. We see it all the time. Right now we have some good options, but it's only up to about 1.5 million for us specifically okay. that we are doing on the jumbo loans. If it goes beyond that, then I encourage them to go to one of our local banks that does commercial loans because they'll do a, you know, a higher loan amount if it makes sense to do it. But um, they'll come back. It's just that they didn't have the backing. And so it was just a, a riskier investment in a very volatile time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And And so I guess with jumbo loans, is there... You're saying you can loan up to 1.5 million. Is that the general range for jumbo loans? No, before they all went away, we were up going up to about 3 million. And oh, this wow. is when it's loan size, not purchase price. So you could buy a sure. $10 million house with a $3 million dollar loan. Yeah. And right now our personal high level is 1.5. I'm not sure what the other institutions are doing, but I mean, we all were hard hit by that. And, and some might yeah. not even be doing them again. 
Yeah. Um, but we have some investors that have come back and it's the, the investors actually that I prefer that are just very similar to a conventional loan, but just a little bit more criteria. So it's not so document heavy. So do you think, okay. So, so do you think in another year, two years, five years, you could potentially get your, your lending amount on jumbo loans back up to 3 million or what, what does that look like? I think so. I mean, We've had jumbo. There was only actually a few months where we didn't have jumbos. And so, and then they, they keep it, you know, but it's, it's anything. I mean, loan guidelines are always changing. Mm -hmm. And so just depending on which direction our economy goes and all of those different things, like if we go in a positive direction, then I would say the chance of them coming back and higher is more probable. But the opposite would be true as well. Sure. But, and yeah, like loan guidelines are always changing. So like we had to, and immediately we didn't have a reaction to the coronavirus impact. And so we were operating in new times with old guidelines, but then they've caught up. And the impact is, like I said, the shorter term of the, where the documents need to be within two months. And we have to verify that you still have a job and then verify again and verify again, like up until the day of closing. Are you still working? Right. Mm -hmm. So... What was your experience during the pandemic with forbearance? Did Were you involved in any of this or did you have clients who had forbearance on their loans or mortgages? Um, yeah. What happened with that? So the forbearance was all with the mortgage payment servicers, which is where like, so we have payment servicers that service our loans. So once you close a loan with us, you, we send you over to, it could be, it's now BSI, Lakeview, Senla, Arvest, any of them will service your monthly payment. And they are the ones that dealt with the forbearance and people mm -hmm. requested it. Um, and so they were really bogged down, but where it impacted us is when, so on the other side of them, when someone decides, okay, well, I'm done with that. I'm either going to refi or buy a new house. And buying a new house is fine because you're, old mortgage goes away and the forbearance isn't going to impact you like that foreclosure or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, unless actually you're keeping that house and buying a new one. And so they can see that the forbearance is still there right. because we can't do a new mortgage when there's a forbearance in effect. Right. If you do what's called a payment deferral, where you're basically tacking your payments onto the end and it shows on your credit that that's what happened. Um, we have to wait until you've had three payments after that. Wow. Um, so that's the biggest impact is just kind of meeting those time frames. Or if it was just a forbearance, just you're caught up and current and then we can move forward. Got it. So it wasn't as bad as, you know, some of the like short sale foreclosure or something like that. Have you seen any um, short sales or foreclosures in the Valley? No, not yet, but yeah. I would, <laughs> I would, and I'm not laughing because it's funny. But I would estimate that on the other side of this, when all the stimulus is wearing out and who knows what's going to come with a new stimulus, I think that there'll be people next year that that'll be more of a reality I, or yeah. whenever, you know, depending on how everything goes out. But I think on the other side of this, we will definitely see some of that. Yeah. Yeah. It'll, it'll be um, fascinating to see how everything plays out. I think it's, that's kind of the million dollar question right now with a lot of home buyers looking to wait because they do think things might shift and happen. And as we mentioned earlier, no one has a crystal ball and this is such a year of uncertainty and you can't predict anything right now that 
we just, we don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, another thing, I mean, I was in banking during the, um, the recession. And the thing that people also have to remember is that your job could be different then too. Yeah. You could buy real estate at a lower price, but do you have the income to support and the down payment? Because maybe, you, you know, you or your spouse or whoever's that in, is in your family, that your jobs are different. So I always just tell people, I'm like, just buy when it feels right. Like if you're thinking you're going to do it, you know, just keep your eye out, find the right spot and it, you'll know when it feels right. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's the famous, I don't know who even said it, who everyone kind of uses it, but when's the right time to buy five years ago. So it's just <laughs> always hard to, you know, figure out what's to come and how the market's going to look. The real estate market's going to look in five, 10 years from now. It's just, again, no one knows, but I like what you say, buy when you feel it's right. When you found the place that checks your boxes and that you can qualify for. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to taking out so say, you know, for a first time home buyer, let's say, or someone who's working up the ladder to purchase a home. So oftentimes first time home buyers might not be able to afford their dream home right off um, the bat. What does it look like if you were to take kind of that staircase method, I will, or if you will, to get in at a lower price point, wait a couple of years, and then transition to buying, you know, putting your equity into another home that's a little bit more expensive and you can work your way up like that. What does it mean to, you know, to transfer, I guess, equity from your current home to your new home? What is, what is that like and how does it benefit home buyers? Yeah, well, it's always better to, I shouldn't say always, but like generally speaking, better to have your own home and build your own equity versus your landlord's because 100% of your rent is going into their pocket and sure. paying their mortgage if they have one. Whereas if you have your own property and your own house, um, I mean, of course you're paying some interest, but you're also working on paying down your principal and growing your equity that way. So you're getting a return on that or a future return when you sell or you know, remortgage or whatever. Um, but also the benefit of market appreciation so that um, you can, if you sell that home to buy a new one, then you can, you know, capture the equity that you had, have a bigger down payment on a bigger or more expensive home, and just keep going that way. The other thing that some people do is they're going to buy, you know, starting at like with like a two-bedroom condo or something smaller, um, or maybe in a location that's not as expensive. Um, they can convert it to a rental property and then buy a new primary home. Hmm. Um, and so, and there's, and without, you know, going into all the details, there's, you know, you can, you know, kind of leverage the old home to buy the new one, whether it's pulling a line of credit to access that equity um, or doing a bridge loan, which is, you know, a loan secured by both properties to buy the sure. new one. Um, but I think a lot of people, what they do is sell. So an example would be, I bought a piece of land um, seven years ago for 30000 and we're selling it today, actually seven years later and we made 110,000 wow. and now we can, and we're buying something else in another yeah. location. And so it just made it more affordable for us. A yeah. totally different thing. And we didn't forecast that we would, you know, that land prices would go up like that or anything like that. But that was really, I mean, doing the exact same thing that you're talking about where it just makes that next one where you're getting into a nicer house, but it doesn't really feel any different than 
you know, or it doesn't have to feel any different than paying for the one that you're paying for right now, the much smaller house, because you have that much larger down payment. Then you're not paying mortgage insurance to get more than 20% down right. and, and all of those things. So it really is, if you're able to do it, um, it can be a very smart financial move for, for yourself and your family. Absolutely. And also the other thing I should actually mention too is the, the advantage is that you can write off your interest on your taxes and your property yeah. tax and, and all of those things, whereas you don't when you're a renter. So there can be additional benefits. So with to, with the interest rates being so low today, in the real estate world, we're seeing a lot of people who could purchase in cash decide to take out a mortgage and purchase with the mortgage with maybe 20% down or 30 or even 50% down. Are you seeing that too a lot with your clients and those who could potentially afford to purchase things in cash, but they're choosing to take advantage of these low interest rates? Yeah. No, people say that to us all the time. They're like, I could just pay this off, but I'm not going to I'm right. put my money to work for me. And so, yeah, I mean, you should be able to get a return, you know, higher than two and a half, three percent in various investments. And so we, we see that a lot. And do you think um, a lot because too, you can also write off your interest and it's a good tax benefit? It could be. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's probably all of the whole spectrum. And usually the people that are making these maneuvers are the people that have more of a you know, a portfolio of, of investments and sure. they're getting, you know, advice. But even if not, I mean, a lot of people are saying, why would I take my money out of the stock market right now when it's, it's only costing me, you know, 3%. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's I shouldn't say it's just like the, yeah, the wealthy because it's not. Okay. So let's wrap this up. Um, what are, if you were to advise on one thing for a first time home buyer, what would it be? I mean, there's a lot of different things, but right now what I would advise is if, if you're choosing and choosing a lender, choose somebody you trust. I've had three examples in the last month of people choosing a lender purely based on what they thought was the best rate or the best deal. And in all three cases, it turned out not to be the best deal. One was paying more fees to get that rate until we looked at it with them. One, the lender couldn't get the, actually two of them, the lenders couldn't get the deal done. And so the rate isn't the only thing to consider in choosing a lender um, because most lenders should be able to give you a competitive rate. But you should work with someone you like, someone you trust, and someone that can get the deal done. And so that's, those are the things that I would weigh into who I select for my lender. And the other thing would be, and the same would hold true for, for their realtor, is work with someone you like and someone you trust. And, someone, and then it's basically, it's a team effort getting you to the finish line and it just feels a lot better. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice um, and really fascinating because you would think that, hey, I'm going to go with this lender. They offered me two and a half percent where this other lender offered me three percent. So why would I go with them? So I think that's a really good piece of advice and something for um, first time homebuyers and any homebuyer, whether you've, you're seasoned or not, um, to be cautious of. Well, I will link your website, your email, um, 
to within the podcast description. Um, and I want to say thank you so much for being here, sharing your knowledge, taking the time. It was very insightful. Hopefully people got some good takeaways, um, whether you're a first time home buyer or an experienced investor. This is all very helpful and relevant information. So thank you so much, Katie. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you liked the episode and the show, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast and share it with friends. As a new podcast, this is the best way you can support the show. To see more about each episode or to connect with me, head on over to my Instagram page at Jordy Karlinski.